Welcome to Bible study. It's very good to have you with us again. Today we have a very special study. It's a great topic. Matthew 24 and 25. I've got my panel with me here and I welcome all of them. I will say welcome to Harvey. We haven't got you for a while, but welcome back again, Harvey. Thanks, Nick. Glad to be here. And Helen, welcome. Thank you, Nick. And Lydia. Hi, everybody. We are also thankful for uh, Len, who is our facilitator, and Len, uh, welcome again to this uh, study, and I will just pass it straight to you, if you don't mind to take us through this. Uh. Yes, thanks for the welcome, Nick, and welcome to the program, listeners. As Nick mentioned in the uh, preamble, we are studying this quarter about preparation for the end time, and this week it's on the book of Matthew, chapter 24 and 25. Now, in the books of Matthew, or in the book of Matthew and Luke, they both contain descriptions and warnings about end-time events. These warnings were spoken by Jesus, who did not leave any doubt that the world as we know it will come to an end. Jesus outlined a number of signs and gave warnings of things to watch out for. Faithful Christians have kept these words of Jesus in mind for many years. But one thing is certain, the end is closer now than ever before. More and more signs have been fulfilled. There is a greater urgency to be prepared. Because, as Jesus said, the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And that's from Matthew 24, verse 44. From the same chapter, in verse 42, Jesus warned, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Today, we will be considering the theme of the end of the world and the second coming of Jesus and some of the events leading up to that climactic time. You would do well to read the whole of Matthew chapter 24, and chapter 25. Helen, are there any reasons to believe everything said by Jesus? I believe definitely yes. Um, even in my own life, I remember when I started to study the Bible and I looked at the prophecies and they've all pretty well come, well not pretty, they've all come true except for the final one. So I believe that um, God's word is absolutely trustworthy from beginning to end. Harvey, uh, do you ever get storm warnings on your computer or your mobile phone or perhaps the news? Yes, I find that in this modern day when there's so much technology around, it's the quickest way to get any information out. So if it's something that's going to be a problem through the technology that we have today, we can get it and the message can be received quickly. Lydia, would you mind reading Matthew chapter 24 and verse 25? See, I have told you ahead of time. That's not a very long verse, is it? No, it's a short one, <laughs> but you, it's, a, it's a good warning. Would you sort of classify this as a sort of a storm warning, just like you get through the media and the mobile phones and so on? It's a good warning, and uh, it's made in time of a need because it warns us to be careful to watch and also to inform us to yes. change our lives yes jesus uh, didn't leave his people 
uninformed about what was going to happen. Now, panel, there have been times when it was proclaimed that the world and society would only improve. Matthew makes it very clear that the world is not going to improve. You know, that there are going to be trials and troubles coming. Um, there will be wars and rumours of wars and, and what have you. So that, to me, shows a deterioration more than anything. Then. Okay. So you see that the world is not improving but getting worse. Yes, Ledger, what do you say? But we will see for ourselves every day of our lives that everything is deteriorating and is getting worse and worse. And to my surprise is that my colleagues, my friends, which are not Christians, and those who I meet in a marketplace, in a shopping center, at the bus station, when I talk to them, to, to the people, they also see these things. And it, they, they have a big question mark in their mind, and they're asking, what is going to happen next? Yeah. Because it's getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, it's like one of my golfing mates, he said to me a number of times, what on earth is happening? Can it get any worse? And he's not a Christian, but he's noticing what's going on. Now, with that thought in mind, how does that relate to today's topic? Well, the signs have been given in Matthew 24 and 25 about what's going to happen. And so when we see these things happen, we should again be aware that the warnings are being fulfilled because the warnings were prophetic and it's being fulfilled. In my lifetime, when I was younger, it seemed everything was really calm. Things changed slowly. But at the moment, everything's changing at an increasingly rapid rate. Yes, Nick. Harvey just mentioned that uh, we need to be aware of these things. The warning was given. How can we become aware of these things? Because if you are not aware of the things which Jesus told us, then we don't know the, the situation. How can we become aware? I think for those who have the truth in their minds and heart and they are acquainted with the truth of God, they know already because in the Bible is written that when you see that the spring is coming and the trees are budding and so on, you see that the spring is there, so it's a sign. Now we have the signs here in front of us and they take place every day in many, many, in many ways. So we already know the end time is approaching very, very fast. Yes, I'm aware of um, some teenage children, they just take this as normal. But when you've lived a little bit longer, you can see that it's not normal. It's deteriorating. Yes, Helen? I'd like to recommend that if you want to know what's coming ahead and you want to know the truth, get into the Word. Get yes. into the Word. Ask God to show you through His Word. And His Word is sure. And through His Word, we can have hope as we go through the world like it is today. Yeah. Ledger? I have two younger sons, so they are always asking us if in our times when we grew up the times were the same because they can see with their own eyes and they always says mom we will not have a future on this earth there's no time to have a future on this earth and they always see things happening on this earth yeah yes actually uh, 
I heard a report once given by some um, ecological scientists who reckon we the Earth uh, will completely fail, collapse, run out of various resources and so on by the year 2050, which is not very far ahead. Well, let's go on. Helen, would you read, please, for us Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 and 13? I'd love to. It says here, and I'm reading from the New King James, it says, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Okay. Now, who was Jesus talking to, directly and indirectly? Well, he was talking to everybody, but directly to the people, God's own people, yeah. to the church, yeah. to us to those who profess to be followers. Now, there was an expression that you read there, and panel, I'm asking you together, what do you understand by that expression, to stand firm, and some versions say, endure? What What does that mean to you? I mean, it's, it, it says that being firm, to stand firm, is, it means to stand firm on the truth that you know and also to the opposition to stand against the opposition okay helen i'm reminded of daniel when it says that he purposed in his heart before he even came to the feast that the um, was being presented he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself yeah and i believe we've got a preparation time now that to stand and endure to the end we need to purpose in our heart that we're going to give our lives to the lord on a daily basis and focus on him yes if there's no opposition there's no need to stand firm is there <laughs> it's only when if you think in um, terms of these um, storm uh, warnings that we get they often say any loose object should be put away tied down so on and so on so there's a need to maintain a steadfastness Lydia what did you want to say I would like to say that to stand against the opposition it, for me is an everyday battle because the opposer is always there with his sneaky and um, tricky uh, temptations to be there just to get me and I can feel this I I encounter a battle an everyday battle with him yeah and I always uh, it always comes in my mind the saying don't defile yourself with this stay firm stay clean stay closer to God and ask for the power and strength to resist the temptations in many many ways yeah. okay Nick if we look at Jesus and what he said to his people, as Helen just mentioned, to the disciples, he was very concerned that among even the early church will uh, be some sort of uh, deceitful teachings. Now we see today even more than any other times, because people like to preach just a politically correctness uh, gospel, and they want to preach uh, just a feel-good gospel and acceptable gospel to everyone. And we are not standing for the truth which God revealed to us. Even that will cause us to be ostracized, you know, put aside, pushed back. And that's the thing I believe here. We need to stand firm in these times and shine that light which Jesus revealed to us through his word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, Harvey, would you mind reading for us 
Matthew 24, it won't be hard to find the text, verse 9. And I want to ask you, what's the reason Jesus gave that his people need to stand firm? In verse 9 of Matthew 24, reading from the New King James Version, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So why is it necessary to stand firm? We've sort of answered this question, but we'll clarify it. Well, when persecution comes, and that's really what it's talking about, and the dislike of people for us, if we are standing for Jesus, then we need to be able to stand up and be counted. Yeah. We need to actually make sure that we are firm in what we believe and know what we believe. Can I just add to that, Harvey, that uh, you're right what you said, when persecution comes, I mean, people had to either stand up or uh, go along with, uh, with the flow. But I will say that if we stand up for the truth, the persecution will come. And that's another th- thing. Probably in places where you don't see any opposition, any persecution, is because it's not a clear distinction in between the people of God yeah. and the deception of this world. Yeah. Now, in the text that you read, Harvey, it's Matthew 24, verse 9, Jesus gave the reason why persecution will come. And what's that reason, panel? In that verse, Matthew 24, verse 9, Jesus actually gave the reason for all the troubles that come on God's faithful people. What is it? Basically, because of Jesus. We actually accept Jesus as our saviour, and that is not something that the world considers viable, really, or even sensible for some people. It's actually a bit silly, isn't it? Because Christians are known to be good, law-abiding people. Why should they be the subjects of persecution if they don't hurt anybody? There is an answer. Ledger, could you find First Peter 5, verse 8? Yes, in First Peter 5, verse 8, it says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This happens to good law-abiding people. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to read, say, for example, what's happening in India and Pakistan where Christians have set up hospitals and clinics and so on and angry mobs come and and, um, smash the things up, sometimes kill the people. just happened in Indonesia recently, didn't it? Somebody uh, attacked churches, a family. And what's motivating them? Well, according to that verse that you read, Satan is behind it. It also says in verse 10, Matthew 24, verse 10, Lynn, it says, many shall be offended. You know, and I think sometimes you'll see that if something cro- cuts across what our opinion is or what we believe, and it could well be the Holy Spirit speaking in our heart, and, and we don't want to change, we put a fight up. And I believe that's why some people turn against, you know, law-abiding people, you yeah. know, or Christians, because it shows them up in a different light as well, and then they are offended, right. and they want to retaliate. Now, there are many signs and warnings given in Matthew chapter 24. Helen, there's something there that's fairly subtle, and if you wouldn't mind reading Matthew 24, verse 24, Mm -hmm. we should discover what it is. 
good. Reading this time from the King James Version, it says, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Right. Now, while you've got your finger there, would you read also verse 5 of that same chapter? Yes, it says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. I find that really interesting, because when Jesus comes, does he not say, every eye will see him? Mm-hmm. And here he's saying, be careful, because people will come and say, I am Christ. Yeah. So we don't want to be deceived, do we? Well, currently there are four people around the world who have a following who claim that they are Jesus Christ. Mm. I won't go into who they are, but... You can look up online and find it too. Yeah, a lot of um, spiritual and religious deceptions going on, isn't there? Lots of things. And some of them are not obvious. Some of those deceptions are being uh, presented by false teaching. And very subtly done. Yes, Mm. yeah. Okay, let's go on. Harvey, would you read Matthew 24, verse 15? From the New King James Version. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let him understand, whoever reads. Okay, now you've just read the text. Can you tell me where the abomination of desolation stands? Yes, as in the text it says in the holy place, which really means from within the church, not outside the church. Okay, well that was going to be my next question. What's the significance of that? It simply means that there's going to be deception within religious organisations, churches, teachings. This is where the false prophets will show up. Helen, would you mind just sharing with us a little thing that um, the um, listening audience probably be interested in? I surely can. It's interesting that it says in Daniel, this abominable thing that causes appalling desolation is mentioned in connection with the daily sacrifice and apparently applies to a rival religious system that takes a position of hostility to the worship of the true God, centering on the services of the sanctuary or temple. This substitute system of worship is abominable or detestable because it is in opposition to that of the true God. It desolates sanctuary by replacing his services with its own. Numerous Protestant interpreters understand these prophecies of Daniel to refer to the opposition of papal Rome to true Christians. Okay, so this is in opposition to true worship of God and worship according to the Bible. What does that word, Harvey, abomination, mean? It means something that's disgusting, loathing, full of hatred. Those sort of nasty words, really. They are. It's it's something you wouldn't want to have and don't want to have because it's totally horrible. And what about that other word? Because this title is Abomination of Desolation. Ledger, what does desolation mean? In Daniel chapter 12 with verse 11 and um, chapter 11 verse 31, it's written that the abomination of desolation appears in connection with the latter phase of Rome, the papal phase in which an alternative system of mediation and salvation 
has been set up, one which seeks to usurp what Christ has done for us and indeed continues to do for us now in the heavenly sanctuary. The expression abomination, desolation, I believe, is about a system that practices worship that is acceptable to God being replaced by another that is unacceptable. Mm. Can I just uh, remind a little bit what it says actually in, uh, in, verse, uh, in chapter 25, verse 15. The abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. Now, who's standing in the holy place? From our understanding, what do we understand? Who's standing in the holy place? Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. And why is Jesus talking about that? Because there will be another religious power pretending that they're doing the same thing, which actually Jesus is doing. There are people in this world who will pretend that through them people are forgiven. You need to go before the priest, for example, and ask for uh, uh, forgiveness and do the confession. You see, that's a religious system which stepped up in Jesus himself's place. Yeah. Any type of worship, Nick, I believe that replaces God's word through error or tradition is abominable to God. I'm going to add that any worship that incorporates replacing God's holy day also with another day is abomination. The des desolation is what is acceptable to God is destroyed by man-made teachings, such as you were mentioning, you know, and purgatory of what then someone dies, they still function in a different form in a different place. The Bible doesn't teach that and so on. Many people have been deceived by false worship practices. We haven't actually um, told you exactly, although one of those uh, quotes that I think Helen read did identify who the abomination of desolation is. Now, in the book of Revelation, like in Matthew 24, there is a description and a warning about end times. And chapter 13 speaks about two beasts, one from the sea and one from the earth, and then an image to the beast. Harvey, would you read those relevant verses, Revelation 13, Verses 11 through to 17. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even fire may... He even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which we was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Okay, so what does a beast in Bible prophecy represent? Some form of power, usually religious power or political power. And sometimes both, both, yes. both together. Yes. Yes. 
Helen, uh, from those verses Harvey read, what does the two-horned beast or two-horned power do? I think verse 12 brings it out very clearly. Exercises the authority of the sea beast and makes the inhabitants of the earth worship the sea beast. Okay. So the second beast, the one from the earth, is um, not pandering, that's the wrong word, but is subject and honours and promotes the interests of the first beast. In verses 13 and 14... What does though what do those verses say? There are two more things that this second beast, the beast from the earth, does. Helen? Uh, performs great and marvelous signs and deceives earth's inhabitants. All right. Now we're talking about preparation for the end time. And here it's quite obvious it deceives the earth's inhabitants. Let's go on. Can I just add there, yeah. uh, Len, we need to be very careful because here we're told that it performs great and miraculous signs. And sometimes we trust our eyes, you know, as to, oh, this must be from God, but it could be a deception. We need to be very clear that God is the one doing the miraculous healings or whatever, as opposed to this beast power. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the latter part of verse 14 and verse 15 tells something that this second beast power or the second power sets up what are those two things well it's going to set up an image to the beast and it will cause all who refuse to worship that image to be killed it's a bit like the two, the um, three hebrews out there on the plain of dura you know when ne king nebuchadnezzar built his image his great um, gold statue and he was saying that if you refuse to worship the statue, in other words, worship Nebuchadnezzar, you will be killed. And these three stood upright when everybody else worshipped. And they were actually cast into a fiery furnace because of it. I, I would like to think that we are empowered by God to stand like those three Hebrews at the end of time. Mm. Yes, no. and, and I believe we're just uh, trying to give a very, uh, very brief a description in regard to these powers and our topic today is more like about to understand the Matthew 24 25 but we brought this one up just to um, for for our listener to understand that there is a power in this world not only the enemy of God which is Satan but in the enemy of God is using a religious power to deceive the elect, which we just read a bit earlier, he's trying to deceive even the elect, if it's possible. But we'll encourage our listeners actually to, to study in the Bible, and we can probably have another Bible study just on this subject, mm. uh, which will uh, require quite a, um, more in-depth. But all those verses in Revelation uh, will, um, will open up uh, a new understanding and each one of us. Okay, it's not only a religious power, and we've seen in past times where a religious power uses a political power to enforce religious ideas. For example, the Holy Roman Empire, the uh, Catholic Church, which was the dominant church during that time, used its political strength 
to enforce its religious will. Helen, what did you want to say? Uh, I just wanted to make sure that we're very clear that although when we discuss Revelation and what's in Revelation, I know some people switch off because, you know, they're frightened. We have no need to fear while we focus on Jesus and his coming. He will keep us and, and hold us firm all the way through. But we need to focus on him. We need to be aware that these things are going to happen. Absolutely. Um, that's a preparation time. But we also don't give in to fear. I think it's just time for a short break right now. Please stay with us. Don't go anywhere because we are going to find out in the second part of this program how can we be ready, prepared. And we're going to talk about the ten virgins and... Um, using our talents which God gave us, our abilities of understanding the Word of God to stand firm in this time we live. Stay with us. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to our Bible study group time. Just if I could put a little promo in here. Um, if you'd like to join a group Bible study rather than just sitting and listening on the radio, then every Saturday morning at Adventist churches all over the country, you can join in with them and they have one, usually starting around about 9.30 on a Saturday morning, although it'll be worthwhile to check out the times because some churches do have different times. Here in Adelaide, there are a number of churches where you could attend, but if I could just point out three of them. Down in the south of Adelaide, there's a, ch a larger church called Morfitt Vale on Pimpala Road, and they start at 9.30 in the morning. In the city, in the CBD on Angus Street, there is Adelaide City Church, and they also start at 9.30 in the morning. And perhaps towards the north in Paravista, they start at 10, but their Bible discussion starts around about half past 11. And you'd be welcome to join and sort of put some faces to the discussion. Very glad to see you as you come along. Now from those verses you read earlier, Harvey, um, the, it says in verse 16 that this power enforces something. What is this thing that it enforces? 
It's called the mark of the beast. That's to be explained probably a little further later on. Well, I don't know if we're going to explain it exactly in this uh, particular study today, but it's a sign of some sort that people belong to that power and what that power uh, desires. And it says, Lydia, what happens to those who refuse to be marked? What happens to them? In Revelation 13, verse 16 and 17, it's written clearly that um, they will be boycotted. It means cannot buy nor sell. Okay, well, Harvey, you've got something there that is going to explain some of this, and uh, would you like to share that with the audience today? Yes, I have a reading here from a writer, Bill Stringfellow. It's from a book called All in the Name of the Lord, and it's uh, page 134 and 135. We've already learned that the two-horned beast is the United States, the first beast is the papacy. The image of the beast is a religious power just like the beast in our country teaching many of the same false teachings, the majority of the Protestant world. To say it plainly, Revelation 13 is revealing to us the astonishing fact that Protestant America will cause us all to worship the papacy and receive its mark by passing a national Sunday law and that all who do not go along with it will suffer the consequences. When man reaches the depth of spiritual decay and passes that law, it will not only make an image to the beast in our country, which is speaking of the United States, and copy the old papal principle of persecution, it will set up the procedure for all to receive the mark of the beast. It's coming clear, you see, it won't be the beast which enforces its mark by the law in our country. It'll be the image, which is Protestant America. Okay, now just to recap, panel, from what we've studied this morning and what you've heard, what is the sea beast power? Yes? It's Rome. Yes, it's the papacy, papacy. the Roman church. What is the earth beast power? The United States. Okay, and what is the image to the beast. It's Sunday worship. Close. It's actually Protestant America, we can put it that way. You might be thinking, oh, how can that be Protestants? They believe in Jesus and all that. And But you folk might not know of some of the movements that are happening now. I know some of you may have seen that um, YouTube clip of Tony Palmer when he was speaking to a large group of evangelical leaders in America where he was promoting um, unity and he was saying that doctrine doesn't matter. We'll sort that out and he pointed up to the sky when we get up there. But there is a movement going now which is very relevant to the study that we're having today called the United Religions Initiative. And this is an article written by Carl Tikrib on June the 25th, 2000. And he actually went to a one of the early meetings of this United Religions Initiative. And this is what he says. 
It'll take me a couple of minutes. Dressed in the garb of their faith traditions, supporters of the global interfaith agenda stood in a large circle on the Carnegie Mellon University campus located in historic Pittsburgh. Buddhists, Hindus, Christians, Wiccans, if you're not sure what they are, they're sort of witches, New Ages, Muslims, followers of Judaism and Zoroastrianism, along with devotees of a multitude of religions joined together as native spiritualists invoke the great spirit and cleanse the circle with smoke from a smudge pot. Once the smudge had made it around the group, indigenous drummers from India led the procession to the university centre. The United Religions Initiative Global Charter Signing Summit was officially open. Now, a little bit more to read. Immediately following the charter signing, I asked Reverend O'Rourke about the role of the Vatican in the global interfaith agenda. He told me that the Roman Catholic Church had received guidance from Pope John Paul II through his words and his interreligious activities that interfaithism is to be vigorously pursued. O'Rourke reminded me that the Catholic Church since the 1962 Second Vatican Council had dedicated itself to advancing global interreligious cooperation. He also told me that at least seven other Roman Catholic priests, each highly respected within Catholicism, were present at the URI charter signing and had offered their support to its goals. Now I read that to you because according to how we understand scripture, that the image to the beast is Protestant America. Helen, earlier in this study from Matthew 24:42, we read about keeping watch, being on the lookout for the return of Jesus. What does the parable of the ten virgins found in Matthew 25 teach us? I find this an exceptionally interesting parable, and I think we can learn quite a few lessons from it in the fact that here are ten virgins, called virgins because they have the pure faith, and they are waiting, all waiting. They all have knowledge of Christ's coming. They are all waiting for his coming. They've all heard the the message, and um, they go to sleep, the whole ten of them. And I thought, well, what am I going to learn from this? But I feel that there are five of those virgins that had a superficial experience. It, their root didn't go down deep. And so although they were professing, they appeared to be following Christ, looking for his coming and doing all the same things. But when they woke up, their lamps went out. They didn't have enough oil. And we talk about the oil as being, being the Holy Spirit. So that, that teaches me that every day I need to be ready. I need to not only just be wanting, watching and waiting, but I need to be praying that the Holy Spirit will take over my life and that I can be one of those five virgins that, that are ready and go into the kingdom with him. Yeah. Now, you used an expression which I rather like. You said that the foolish virgins had a superficial experience, you said their roots did not go down deep. What what does that imply? They're satisfied, I believe, with with 
the status quo in their life. They're not digging deeper and, and getting right into the word. And perhaps it also means that they believe they've had a first love and they've departed from it without even realizing. Yeah. It's a daily walk with Christ. It's not once saved, always saved. It's a daily okay. walk living. It's not him. like look at your Bible at the shelf and uh, <laughs> say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer because I've got a Bible. No, you need no. to open it and study it Absolutely. and read it, isn't it? Absolutely. I was just going to parallel a little bit uh, with uh, uh, looking back in history. We've been through a period of dark ages where from a spiritual point of view, you may say that the ten virgins were asleep because it was not visible. Uh, the activity, you know, of uh, any faith was not really visible. It came a time of uh, wakening up and the five wise virgins were equipped with everything what they need to attend the event. The other five virgins, which were asleep again, they just uh, assume that they can get something, you know, uh, from uh, from the other virgins. I'm just saying this because in history right now we, we find ourselves, we can be part of either one of those categories. We can be the foolish or we can be the wise virgins. If we just presume that, you know, following up a tradition, following up a set of rules from a religious or the other, then we may be just foolish. But if we are intentional in being uh, equipped with the Word of God and everything what we need in our lamps, mm. then I think we can uh, fall in the category of the wise virgins. Good yeah. point, Nick. Ledger, you've got something to share here. The foolish virgins are, as we see, unprepared. Their lamps are going out or are gone out, some version says. But there is still a flickering flame. It means the women still have a little oil, but not enough to be prepared to meet Christ. These foolish virgins represent Christians who are waiting for Christ to return, but have a superficial experience with him. They have some oil, some working of the Holy Spirit in their lives, but it is merely flickering. They are satisfied with little when they needed much. This class represented by the foolish virgins have been content with the superficial work in their lives. They do not know God. They have not studied his character. They have not held communion with him. Therefore, they do not know how to trust, how to look and live their service to God that generates into a form of godliness. Yeah, that follows on to what I mentioned before, having the form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Mm, yeah. yeah, that's right. All right. In the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, Harvey, is a parable of the talents. Now, I know you've read this before. Could you just quickly tell what the parable is and explain what it's all about? In Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, if you want to read it, is the parable of the talents. We call it the parable of the talents because it says the master one day decided he was going to go for a trip to a far country and he was going to be away for quite a while. So he got his workers together and he handed them out the talents. And we say that one of the group of his servants he gave five talents to, 
to another he gave two talents and to another he gave one talent. And I suppose we could say that those talents are really equated to talents to a large extent. And so he felt that one of them could handle more than the others. And likewise, the second one could handle a little bit more than the last one. He was away for quite a long time. And when he came back, the one that had five talents was able to give the master not just his five talents, but another five talents. He doubled the talents. The second one also had doubled the talents. But the third one didn't. He did nothing with his talents. And he had it buried in the ground, it describes in the parable. And so he gave it back to the master and he said, you didn't do the work, and so, but I'm giving you back what you left with me. And he was treated as being a lazy and unprofitable servant. And uh, it's very important that we have to understand that if God has given us talents, we should use them. It's a case of use them or lose them. Mm. And uh, that is a, a truth. Just as the oil in previous parable represents the Holy Spirit for the ten virgins, so the coins or the bag or bags of gold represents talents, which is the Greek word talanta. The talents represent special gifts of the Spirit together with all natural endowments. It means that spiritual gifts come from the Holy Spirit. Gifts are never received without the giver. So by receiving the greater gift, which is the Holy Spirit, we have to use our talents for the glory and honor of God. I believe that the issue is actually not how much we have, but how we use what we have been given. Mm. Yes. Mm. And how can we how can we put at work those talents and use them as you just mentioned, Helen? Well, I believe it also comes back to the fact that if we are given light on a certain subject, for example, I was given light on the Sabbath. Now, I had that light, but what I did with the light was important, you know, and I, I believe that's the same with the talents. We're not going to be judged with uh, on what talents we have or gifts, but on what are we doing with them. Exactly. Can I rephrase a little bit? Who put at work those talents, if I may say, in which God gave us, you know? Me. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You mentioned Holy Spirit there yes. because it's interesting. Sometimes we can think that we do things in our own uh, no. understanding. But actually God equipped us, each one of us with talents. But mm -hmm. we need to have the power of the Holy Spirit to activate those gifts, if you like. Yeah. Because if we don't have the Holy Spirit in our life, and how can we have the Holy Spirit? By a, through a relationship with God. And God says, I will send you another comforter to be with you everywhere. And we need to intentionally focus on this relationship with God. I think it's interesting too, Nick, that no one was given any more talents than, than they could handle. Exactly. You know, the man was given five. Mm. Uh, he could handle five. The mm. one that was two, handled two. The one with one, of course, neglected it. Mm. But, you know, they were only given what they could handle. Also, we have to recognize, we have to admit that I have a gift from the Holy Spirit and use it for the honor and glory of God. 
Can I just add one more thing there, which I've taken, I suppose it's my, I don't like to use the word motto, but I read a statement years ago that said, there is no limit to the one who is setting self aside, allows for the working of the Holy Spirit in his or her life. And I believe that is true. As we use our gifts and talents, God increases them if we use them for his glory. Now I want to nail home a point here. Matthew twenty four fourteen speaks about the reason we should use the gifts that we have. Would you read that for us, please, Legend? Yes, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I remember that one day I had a talk with Alan, my son, and he was saying to me, Mom, if you have a bag full of something and you don't share with others, it's like uh, exactly as God's gifts are given to you. If you don't take it out from the bag and share with others, God is not going to put more in the bag. Yes. You know, we as Christians have a responsibility to other people. Mm. And it works out like this, that if we don't share the knowledge from the Word of God and it comes to judgment time, they can say, well, we had such and such as neighbours or we had uh, Christians as friends and they never said anything. The responsibility comes back to us, which is a challenge for all of us as Christians. Listeners, uh, we've just about reached the end and I would like to summarise the study today. And we've um, briefly studied about the fact that the end of the world associated with Jesus' coming, his second coming, that is, is near. We've been warned to be on guard against deception and to be ready for his coming. We've been warned that God's true people will experience persecution and even death. The most plausible explanation of who initiates that persecution is the USA through Protestants who've aligned themselves with the Roman Church. We've seen that true Christians need to have a genuine religious experience and be filled and motivated by the Holy Spirit. And we've also been warned that we all need to use our God-given gifts to help save, that is, the unsaved. What a responsibility. It's all a bit frightening, isn't it? But friends, it'll all be worthwhile in the end. What is required of us is to be faithful and to be ready. And it's comforting to remember that Jesus was prepared to undergo persecution and death, that we might be saved. Wouldn't all what he did for us be a total waste if we give up? Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, panel, for um, this uh, great uh, discussion. I would like to just say something to our listeners. Uh, if you find um, through our talking today that were some things challenging to you, we were talking also about some uh, powers and some uh, church organizations which uh, you may uh, have questions in regard to that thing. 
Can I please uh, just invite you to consider to study the Bible more? Just this past week, I had a wonderful study with... Uh, we were mentioning today uh, a bit about, about Catholic Church. And I had a Bible study with two ladies from this uh, church. And I was so amazed to see their openness, you know, their heart to search for the truth, not to just follow a particular organization, but to find out what the Bible presents. And I will invite you, if you like to have further Bible studies and go more in depth in some of the aspects which we just uh, brought up today, please don't hesitate and contact us to the numbers which we give or you can uh, contact the, the station, the radio station for this reason. Until then, may God bless you, have a wonderful week, and I hope we'll see you next time.